All right, our scripture reading for today comes from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, it's God's kindness to be with you all again and to study the scriptures with you all again. Uh, if you're in person or you're on Facebook Live or you're on YouTube, thanks for joining with us in worship. Uh, if you're new to North Cross physically or virtually, we're really glad you're here and we just hope that um, you can stick around. If you're here personally, outside we'll hang out a little bit. We'd love to get to know you. And also, um, if you're here virtually, maybe just send an email uh, to info at northcrosschurch.com or to me, sid at northcrosschurch.com. We'd love to hear from you um, and to get to know you better. COVID-19, social unrest, economic uncertainty, and political divisions. These, are the, these kind of events, this kind of situation has forced us to rethink and redo the ways that we live. How do we relate to family? How do we relate to work, to friends, to, to church? And many of these shifts in what we do and also why we do it have been reactive. They've been reactions. So fast and so by necessity. And this makes it all the more important to take time to ask ourselves basic questions. Basic questions like, why am I doing what I am doing? and to look to the Bible for answers. Every week, we study and we read the Bible, God's word, together to address questions about who God is and how we live. But for the next three weeks, we're gonna do the same, but we're gonna focus in a sermon mini-series. I like to spend some time asking the why and the what for questions about the church and about our individual opportunities in the church. Yes, this is an important national and global moment of chaos and rapid change to life as we know it. Perhaps it's never been more important to clarify what Christianity is actually all about, but from the Bible, not from pop culture. 
And it's also important locally and specifically to North Cross, to our church, to our community. The last 10 months have left us feeling more disconnected. Frankly, I don't know if you're like me, but we're out of shape in building and doing community at all. And it's harder to gather and get known and know others. And as I've hinted at, we live in a lot of cultural confusion about what the church is and what the church does in times like these and in all times. And this is why North Cross is intentionally spending the beginning of the year asking, why are we doing what we are doing questions from the pulpit and at staff meetings and elder meetings and deacon meetings and our congregational meeting coming up in Sunday, next Sunday. And I hope that this sermon series and our meetings and our congregational meeting in particular kind of leads us to ask and to have good conversations. To have good conversations that help us to act and not react as a church. And I hope these kind of conversations spill out past January, past the beginning of the year, and out over into meals and coffees and FaceTime and WebEx and beers and whatever else. And I'm gonna, I guess I'll just make this personal plea from up front let, let this be a time where we can actually engage each other. Let's engage each other in real ways. Ask how you are doing, share how you're doing, and ask how someone else is doing. And I'd also ask that for the church leadership, on behalf of the church leadership, on behalf of me personally. Please tell us how you are and tell us how we're doing. We're asking for feedback at a time where it is difficult um, to, 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 to get it just logistically. <laughs> and so I want you to think about the fact that we as a, as a church leadership are never too busy to hear from you. And so please, I hope the congregational meetings will start in that direction, but that's part of why we're looking at all of this. So along these lines, we're going to spend the beginning of 2021 focusing on the church uh, and church leadership as a congregation. As you heard earlier, Matt said we're, we're going to nominate elders and deacons, and the session is going to appoint women to help with shepherding. It's going to be called a women's care team. And so with these sort of intentions and conversations pressing, it's really important from the pulpit, from the front, to ask God's scriptures our difficult questions. For instance, what is the church? What's the church? And why invest in something, a project or a group of people, this church that can be so hard and so hurtful sometimes? And then we're also going to ask, what does a life of ministry look like? What does a life of ministry look like? And how is ministry rooted in and play out within the church, even this church, North Cross? Before we look to Ephesians chapter two for our first set of questions, what is the church and why the church? I just wanna pray. Would you pray with me and for our time in God's words to us this morning? Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the opportunity in our own internal chaos to come and rest. To sit at your feet, to learn from you. Help us to cherish this time. Help us to learn more about your heart, your heart for us, your heart for this world. Lord, would you teach us about your glory? 
And Jesus, would you be high and lifted up in the estimation, the worship of our hearts? Would we see you, would we behold you as more believable and more beautiful as a result of studying this passage together? We beg this of you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the vision of the church in Ephesians 2 is glorious, isn't it? Just that what Catherine read a few minutes ago, there's racial reconciliation, there's peaceful end to hostilities, there's mutual growth, there's even good citizenship. But our hearts can quickly swivel to our personal experience of the church or even other people's descriptions of the church and culture. Usually the church is still racially separated, often bickering, sadly defensive. And then there's that sinking feeling we sometimes have on Sunday mornings, maybe you're feeling it right now, the utter indifference, the boredom. Or during the news cycle, how many more church leaders can fail and fall, right? Or what else awful can be done in Jesus's name? I mean, where is the glory? Where is Jesus breaking down or building up anything? And I would argue these same criticisms blast most powerfully in our songs and TV shows, don't they? For instance, maybe you've heard that song, Take Me to Church. It's old, a few years old, but Hosea's voice is so good and so gravelly, and the chorus is just so catchy, right? The chorus goes like this. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Offer me that deathless death. Good God, let me give you my life. Can you hear the sneering sarcasm in that song? Add to, cor- add to the chorus verses like, every Sunday is getting more bleak, a fresh poison every week. <laughs> and that's a fine looking high horse that you've got in the stable. We've, we've a lot of starving faithful. Yikes. And then there's the music video for the song. I don't know if you've seen that recently. Maybe we don't watch music videos anymore. But it plays in the sort of grainy black and white footage, and it's uh, meant to look gritty and real. And there's this angry mob, the church, chasing down a young man, trying to kill him or worse. (laughs) While Hosier's Take Me to Church makes a dramatic indictment against the church, the Saturday Night Live skit from a few years ago, St. Joseph's Christmas Mass Spectacular, highlights the utter awkwardness and boredom of the church sometimes, even at church's prime time, like Christmas. You can watch this on YouTube if you'd like, maybe not now, uh, but it's as funny as painful, uh, it's as funny as Take Me to Church is, is catchy, the song Take Me to Church is catchy. And what's meant to be a fake commercial for a local church, uh, there is, we see this cast of uncomfortable church characters on this SNL skit, Pastor Pat, who says everything at constantly changing speeds. And then you have Mr. Drubbler, who's eager to say, peace be with you, and who's holding out the sweatiest hand you've ever seen in your life. And then the organist, Linda Tejo, who takes 20 minutes to find the right sheet music and still starts in the wrong chord. And then you've got teen soloist Bethany, trying too hard and still singing off key. Then you've got teen atheist Devin, who's trying too hard not to pray and to cross his arm, hooded sweatshirt arms in contempt. And then there's the painful events of the service, the sermon with the softest pastor joke followed by the softest parishioner laugh. 
And then plus all 44 verses of all come ye faithful. Sure, look, not everything that SNL and Hosier say about the church is fair and accurate, but they make some points that actually clearly resonate. And these cultural images of Jesus' church don't easily match the church that Paul's describing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. At the same time, though, we've, we give the Bible, God, and folks like Paul way too little credit. Host, hostility and indifference about the church and in the church is not just our problem. These were widespread complaints 2,000 years ago. They were, pro- they were their problems too. The Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentile Greco-Romans, they had these kind of problems as well. You see, Paul is pitching this ideal church to Ephesus, to indifferent Gentiles and hostile Jewish followers of Jesus. And God, through Paul, is both describing what the church is and he's casting this vision of what the church could be so that first century and now 21st century people can actually live better together. So in a sentence, Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 are telling us, God lovingly embraces messy and messed up people, and his embrace makes this place, the church, a place of love for others. In the face of that kind of guarded hostility and boredom toward the church, in that face of that, Ephesians chapter 2 is telling us to remember and discover two truths about the church. Two truths. First, remember God hugs messy and messed up people close to him. We see this in verses 11 through 18. And second, I want us to discover getting hugged by God makes us a place to hug others. And we see this truth in verses 19 through 22. These points and verses are gonna serve as our outline this morning and you'll be protected behind me and also in your bulletin. And as usual, we're gonna begin at the beginning of the passage and look at verses 11 through 18 together first and see how God reaches out and hugs close messy and messed up people like you and me. So our first point. Let's start in verses 11 through 13. There Paul addresses two church people. uh, He addresses verses 11 through 13, two church people who weren't Jewish. They were called Gentiles. And then he addresses verses 14 through 16 to those people who were in the church who were Jewish. And finally, in verses 17 and 18, he addresses both people groups, non-Jewish Gentile followers of Jesus and also Jewish followers of Jesus. And we see in verses 11 through 13, These verses primarily address the non-Jewish Greco-Roman Gentiles in Ephesus. This people group generally had an attitude of indifference. So he's addressing the attitude of indifference in the church. Many first century Gentile Christians felt like several of us feel even in this room or at home. The church felt so culturally different and it felt so old and silly And it felt like it just hindered my ability to feel a spiritual whoosh. And for first century Gentiles, that church felt so culturally Jewish, so different from what they were used to. But even then, underneath the surface were non-negotiable reasons for worship. The scriptures offered a God-ordained pattern of worship 
that gets us, gets people into the Bible, gets people into prayer, gets people into community, because God promises to show up especially in those moments, these moments, and those postures of heart, these postures of heart. And so the first century Gentiles and we are called into a story bigger and older than ourselves. The church tells and reenacts the plot line and the practices of a long line of believers that goes way back across the centuries and millennia and across the globe, northern and southern hemisphere. So therefore, when the church doesn't feel like it fits our individual consumer-shaped needs, we need to remember the gift of the church to us. Whether it's the first century Ephesus or 21st century Lake Norman, each of us is not owed the church. We're not owed the church. We are brought in by mercy. Mercy. This means we're not owed all that comes with church. It's God's free gift. But I get it. This gift part is hard to believe on the Sunday mornings when there's finally nothing on the schedule. <laughs> it's hard to believe on a Sunday morning when there's something that would be so easy to schedule aside from church. And I know I'm paid to be here at some level, okay? However, I just want to confess, it's sometimes hard for me to be here. It's hard for me sometimes to show up at the Bible story during the week or the life groups or all the different things because I'm a human being just like you guys. And sometimes I'm surrounded and oftentimes the church forces me to be surrounded by people different than me. And that's hard. It's hard to be around people that are older than me and much younger than me. People who think politically to the right of me or to the left of me, act more sincerely or ironically than me or are socially smooth, or are socially awkward, who are very formal or very informal. Not to mention that church is one of the few social spaces in our lives where we don't know who was gonna show up. <laughs> we just have no idea. It's not an invite only. Will there be a close talker? Will there be a loud mouth breather? Will there be someone clingy? Will there be someone coolly distant? Will there be someone inappropriate? Will there be someone I get self-conscious about offending? Yet God shows up there. God shows up here. He brings us near him then. He brings us near him now. He speaks eternal power, eternal peace to our time-troubled hearts in this space. Because the church is the one place on the planet where two things can actually happen. First, people who are drastically different racially, economically, socially, can come together in order to be with each other, not just next to each other. Second, the same very different people, week in and week out, get God. <laughs> We come here to get God. We come here to get his peace, to get his perspective, to get his hope, to get all of these things for free. We don't have to do anything but show up and ask. God does the rest. But verses 14 through 16 continue to push on our attitudes towards God's church. Right? This passage calls out not just our attitude of indifference, 
like that of the Saturday Night Live skit is kind of portraying, it also calls out our attitude of hostility. Hostility, like that found in that Hosier song or in many first century Jewish Christians. You see, Paul tells us that Jesus, Jesus abolished the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances. That means that Jesus got rid of the rules we use to make us feel better than other people. The rules we use to make others feel worse about themselves. Those are abolished. They're through. Jesus' body was hung up on a cross to tear down all the many rules we make for what it means to belong, to be inside or outside, to make church just another social clique in our lives. Jesus' death ended cultural rules like circumcision in first century Turkey, or having to look happy and casual but attractively put together in 21st century Lake Norman. Done. Jesus died so you can walk into this church with the wrong clothes on. Jesus died so you can walk into this church with a dark trail of guilt following you. Jesus died so that you can hear God's heart quieting peace spoken over you, even if some people stink at passing the peace. According to verses 14 through 16, God tears down that man-made wall between the first and the last between the most and the least, between the scorekeepers and the rule breakers, between the lovely and the left out. This is because in the words of Robert Capon, Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, to improve the improvable, to correct the correctable. He came to raise the dead. But I love how verses 17 and 18 italicize all that came before in this passage. We're told that Jesus promises his peace to us no matter where we come from. That is, God is busy showing up, arms brimming over with kindness for every kind of woman and man and child. God, Jesus is ever there granting acceptance, favor, and freedom even for the gossipers, for the feuders who dress in holy wrapping paper. Listen to how the author Dick Keyes puts it. The church is for people who are failures, even failures at doing church. But the church is a community of people under God that is a place of grace where God is still working in the wreckage to change us. In my zeal to rightly criticize the church, what's wrong with the church, I sometimes forget that the church runs on grace. That the church is a place of grace, unmerited favor, unmerited goodness, unmerited healing. To those people whose only outstanding feature is that we need goodness and favor and healing. I like how Robert Capon, who I just quoted earlier, gets at how grace works. He said, God's love is like the perfect fire department. God's love is like the perfect fire department. Bear with this. Yes, the fire department wants to prevent fires, right? So it goes around teaching people not to store oily rags next to hot heaters, 
not to sort of build your lives and your home in a wildfire zone, but when the siren goes off and it turns out there's a fire at my house, which has been cited for violations 20 times before, or maybe caught fire three times in the past week, what do you think the fire department, even a bad fire department does? Do they drive their by in their shiny red rescue truck and say, well, we can see your house is on fire and we do have gallons upon gallons of highly pressurized water, but you've done this once too many times, right? Or we're tired of how often this just happens to you in your life. So we're gonna have to let the place burn down, preferably with you inside it, you know, to teach you a lesson. No, <laughs> that's not how the fire department works. It's never worked that way. Of course not. The firefighters rush in and they put out the fire as quickly as they can because in their eyes, rescue is their first and primary business. It's the same way for God and his church. God loves us where we are. If you cry out, he's gonna rescue you as many times as it takes, no matter how you got there. If you cry out, he's gonna rescue you. And God's church is full of people, full of people who can't help but start fires. God's church is full of people who can't stop fires from spreading into our lives. It's a place where we turn to because we actually have problems. That's why we're here. The church is really the only place on this planet designed to handle our problems, designed to handle us as we are with our mistakes and our disasters. For us to fail and to be messy, where we don't have to walk the psychological tightrope perfectly every time. We can say something wrong here. We can do something poorly here. We can be hurting. We can hurt here. And simultaneously, we can be understood, we can feel safe, and we can get hugged, even if I'm not sure exactly how to hug people in COVID-19. This is why no one, no one in the church has to say they're fine. No one can say they're safe. But by faith in Jesus, everyone can say, they have direct access to God. And we can get his peace. We can get God's peace through being with each other because the church isn't just full of twisted fire starters. It's also filled with volunteer firemen and firewomen. People who know how to hose down the guilt people who know how to hose down the shame and the fear because they've been there, because we are there. And this changes the reasons we go to church in person if we can, as soon as we can. Church isn't an exercise in productivity or efficiency. Church isn't the latest spot to be seen or have family fun. Church is where we go to get wet. Church is where we go to soak in God's peace. And it really does the trick if you know you're burning up inside. As much as the next person sitting beside you or six feet from you, the left or the right. And that's how real connection happens. 
Because in the words of Henry Nouwen, community arises where the sharing of pain takes place, not as a stifling form of self-complaint, but as a recognition of God's saving promises. Community happens where the sharing of pain takes place, not as a stifling form of self-complaint, but as a recognition of God's saving promises. And really verses 19 through 22 give us one such saving promise. God is not done with his church and he's not done with us either. God is hugging us so that we might be a loving space for others. That's our second and last point. God's promise, he promises to transform his people. Then in the first century and now in the 21st century and all of the centuries between and beyond, God pictures a hostile and judgmental people like the Jews and the Gentiles in Ephesus as, a, as well as sort of indifferent individualists, people like us. And he pictures all of his people in all time and all places as a holy temple in the Lord, as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, verses 21 through 22. God is taking burning houses and fire victims, and he's making us into frontline firefighters, firefighters who dwell with a hospitable rescue. But how? How do judgmental, hypocritical, uncool, sometimes hurtful people become a place where we get acceptance and peace? According to verse 19, Jesus is transforming us at an identity level. He's taking singular strangers and aliens and he's declaring us plural citizens with full, inalienable, and shared spiritual rights to all that God possesses. But perhaps the best way to understand how shared citizenship changes Jesus' church is to illustrate it. I'm gonna spend the rest of our time doing this. Admittedly, the song, All Right Here, is much less known and maybe less catchy than Take Me to Church, but it's no less powerful. The singer-songwriter Andy Gullihorn describes what the church is beautifully. He sings this. You don't have to send a message because there's nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. Everybody's got their limits. There's only so much you can take. You don't have to be a hero and keep it all in. And then there's the chorus. You can weep like a baby you can break and go crazy. It's all right here in my arms. You're all right here in my arms. This is the power and the glory of the church. You're all right here. And finally, the church shows forth another kind of power and glory, another kind of grace not only its ability to say you're all right here, but also to still be right here. Here's what I mean. Paul penned this letter to the church of Ephesus during the reign of the Roman emperor Nero. In 64 AD, there was a fire in Rome and the Nero blamed a small weird group of Jewish and Gentile people called Christians. 
And so he began a massive systemic persecution that resulted in the horrific death of many Christians, including the author of the letter to Ephesians, Paul. Christians like Paul were crucified. They were, they were fed to beasts in the Colosseum. They were lit on fire to serve as human torches for Nero's outdoor dinner parties. And just a few centuries later, the surviving Christians decided to build St. Peter's Basilica, what one modern architect calls the greatest of all churches in Christendom. But amazingly, do you know where they built St. Peter's Basilica? It was built on top of the very garden, the gardens where Nero burned Christians alive. It was a physical statement. It told the watching world, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In that space of historical hostility was a place of gorgeous murals and gold gilded doors. There was a message about all God's church we continue to need to hear. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A friend of mine once put it so well. John Stone said this, God's church isn't going away because it is part of God's eternal plan. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That is God's promise, not just for St. Peter's Basilica, but for the church at large. Yes, I hear you. I know it. I work here. My livelihood depends on it. I've staked my mortgage on it. The church is a fire-singed mess. It can feel so boring. It can feel so judgy. Yes, it can always be better. But God loves his church. It's not going anywhere. God loves his church. And systemic persecution and a pandemic can't destroy it. God loves his church. And the darkest evil is but a firm foundation for it. God loves his church. And Jesus gave his life for the church. So that at the very least, I can be patient with it. After all, the church is the space for Jesus to show up. The church is the place of the words of life. And so we say with Christians who've said this for centuries all across the world, where else can we go? To whom else should we go? It's all right here. And so I can say, sincerely and without sneering sarcasm, take me to church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this reminder in a tough season, a reminder that goes way beyond North Cross and a warehouse with a buzzing HVAC and flickering fluorescent lights. It's a reminder of your faithfulness and your promise that you are God.
and we are not. That you are powerful and you are caring even when we're not. Maybe especially acting in that way when we're not. Would you bring this to heart and mind today and the rest of our days? Would you encourage us by this message? We pray. Change the ways that we approach you, we ask. Comfort us, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.